What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Austin Allred is the co-founder and CEO of Lambda School, a full computer science education that's free until you get a high-paying job. In this conversation, we covered Y Combinator, the challenges of building a startup, what it takes to train a computer engineer, why the current student debt problem is so bad, and how Lambda School is helping hundreds of people avoid debt and build a better career. I really enjoyed this conversation and think that Austin's work is important. I hope you find this conversation as engaging and fun as I did. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only blockchain event and media production company I trust. If you're an investor, lawyer, accountant, or entrepreneur, and want to attend exclusive events and dinners, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you won't be disappointed. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, I've got Austin here. Uh, super excited about this conversation. Uh, we got a lot to cover, uh, everything uh, education. So before we get started, uh, I don't think, I, I actually don't even know what your background is pre-Lambda. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I grew up in Utah. Um, did a bunch of crazy stuff when I was younger. Ended up working in... Wait, you know, hold on back. What crazy stuff? <laughs> so so I'm Mormon. Um, so I served a mission in eastern Ukraine. Um, came back, dropped out of school, went to China, vagabonded around China. Um, Where? Uh, my home base was Shanghai, uh, but I, I literally didn't live anywhere. I just kind of yeah had a suitcase and went wherever. Um, hostels are super cheap there, so I just jump on a train. Um, yeah, then went back to, to Utah, decided to get into tech somehow, had, had no money, had no skills. Um, <laughs> so I just jumped in a Honda Civic and drove out to Palo Alto and lived in the, my car for a while while got things off the ground. And So hold on, what, what were you doing in China? Um, I mean, this was like 2011. If you, if you remember at the time, China was the thing, yep. right? Everybody was always talking about China. Um, I'd, I'd been selling on stuff on eBay and importing stuff on a small scale, so I was just interested in import, export, wanted to figure out what was going on, basically. Um, so yeah, just decided to go out and see what was happening. Um, decided that import, export wasn't for me. It's highly regulated. It's just it's a nasty space that's full of antiquated stuff. And now Flexport is taking it on, bless their hearts. Um, but yeah, really just decided to double down on tech when I was out there and yep yeah all right so you come back uh drive to Palo Alto uh living in your car yep all right uh so one thing I always I mean are you do you sleep in the front seat passenger seat back seat yeah so you lay the the passenger seat and the back seat down um feet in the trunk head on like the passenger seat um twin air mattress halfway blown up it kind of like covers up the the gaps Um, you had like a like a suite in there oh it was it was swanky yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. So and, and so the bougie civic. While while you're uh while you're sleeping in the car, hanging out in Palo Alto, what uh 
interest kind of focus? What, what are you doing? Yeah, so, so at that time I was working on a company called Grasswire, okay. um, basically trying to crowdsource um, fact-checking of the news. Um, it worked, so we ended up getting you know half a million dollars in VC and running it for a year and a half. Um, it worked, we got like half a million visitors a month at its peak, um, but it's still, there was no real good way to monetize the news at that time. Mm -hmm. If it were today, you would have put a coin on it and done some crypto stuff somehow. Um, kind put, of a, put a coin on it. I never put, heard put, it before. Put a coin on it? <laughs> Just put yeah. a coin on it. I, I like that. Um, yeah, kind of Steam It style stuff would have worked, but there was no way to incentivize anything. There was no way to monetize other than generic ads. It was just a nightmare. Um, the, also, the uh, the term fake news had not been coined yet. Right. If we were about a year later, we would have... You'd been riding that fake news wave? Yeah. Yeah, we were, we were too early. So we, <laughs> we, we basically died the December before Trump started coming to power, so to speak. Got it. Um, and really, that's, you know... The fake news thing was really a, largely a reaction to Trump, but um, so bad timing. Yep. Okay. So uh, so go through that and obviously you know learn a bunch. I'm sure, etc. Company dies. What do you do? Yeah. So um, it was not <coughs> it was not a good time for the company to die. Um, we were my daughter or my, sorry, uh, my wife was like eight and a half months pregnant. Um, Let's see. We, yes. So we were, we were remote. So I was living in the middle of nowhere in Utah by my in-laws farm. Um, and yeah, so you got a house at this point. No, we, we were still renting. We were like, oh man, $120,000 for a house. That's no, 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 so I meant, but like, but you're living in a house. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, all right. No it, car, no field. No. Yeah. There's, right. there's, I've never been to Utah. So there's no such, sure. yeah. Like a, a three bedroom at the time was like 120 K you could rent it for like 600 bucks a month. So it, Easy. There's no point. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So company goes under. I'm like, oh, shoot. Um, go burn through all of our savings, paying off contractors and making employees whole and all that stuff. Um, and then our daughter ends up in the NICU for a long time. So we're like broker than broke, no job, living in the middle of nowhere. There's no tech, anything. It's just farms and a community college. Um, so I decided to write a book about growth, which is the stuff that I had learned in the past you know, couple years. Um, sold that. It did really well. Um, and then that started kind of circulating in Silicon Valley. A company called LendUp in San Francisco saw it and reached out and said, hey, can we have you join our growth team? And I said, yes. So I ended up in San Francisco. Got it. And just overall, how to grow a tech company, acquire users? Yep. User acquisition. Um, and the idea was how to go from zero to a thousand users for free, you know, kind of cheap gorilla growth hacky stuff, um, but very tutorial like. So it takes you through, OK, you have this company. Here's how you figure out which channel to use. Here's how you figure out, OK, let's take Instagram. Here's how you can win on Instagram step by step. Literally just do this stuff and it'll work. Here's how you win on Twitter, step by step, step by step, and it'll work. Um, and you know, so I, I kind of sold it as like a tutorial more so than a generic marketing book, and yep. it did well. Sold quarter million dollars of it. It was all self-published, so you just basically keep that, and that got us out of the red. Yeah, love that, love that. Uh, all right, so you get to end up in San Francisco, uh, working on the growth there. Mm -hmm. uh, what made you leave? Uh, yeah, so left to start Lambda. Um, basically 
you know, coming from a rural area to San Francisco, you just see the, the huge discrepancy in opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the town I was from, the median income is like 30K. Um, and so I'd talk to people and say, hey, there are, you know, code schools out there. In $10,000 you know, $10, to go to a code school, like in San Francisco, that's a referral bonus. That's, that's nothing. Yep. Um, but there's just no possible way those people could move to San Francisco and go to a code school and not go broke all at the same time. So the original idea was just, hey, let's take a code school. Let's put it online so that it's more accessible. Let's make it cheap. Um, since we don't have physical buildings, we can drive the cost down. The whole, I mean, just classic, hey, let's put this on the internet kind of thing. Yep. Um, and yeah, started that as kind of a side project while it lend up and did, you know, we would get these huge free classes to kind of promote it. So we'd have 7,000 people in this free class. And then we would convince a few of them to pay us 10 grand. Um, and that was enough to quit our jobs and go full time. And what they're doing is so free class go in it's all online. They're sitting at home. They're taking the, like a daily course. They're doing a, um, you know, uh, kind of once a week? How does that work? Yeah. So, so the free course is basically every night, Monday through Thursday for a few hours, you you know, we're introducing a topic, you're working on some stuff, you have a review. Um, obviously you can only do that so much when there are 7,000 people. So it's a little bit different of a structure there. Um, but it was basically, Hey, let's teach you how to program, you know, up to a certain point for free. And then if you like it, you can pay $10,000 and, and do the rest. We'll, you know, train you for three months, kind of a standard code school model. Um, we weren't that creative in the beginning and that, that was really all it was to get off the ground. We were just saying, Hey, let's take, you know, code schools exist. Let's put them online and make it not suck. That was the entirety of the the vision. And is this one of the schools when you first started where, uh, you were recording a video, um, or is it one where you were building like modules and, and people could go in and, and actually, uh, uh, type. So not either, not either of those things actually. So, so we felt and still feel that it was very important to have it be live. So it's like live streamed. Um, and then you'll have group working sessions where you're all working on the same code base at the same time. Um, or, you know, individual coding sessions, um, and, that, and that's true to this day. It's still live and interactive. It's, I mean, it's not exactly like a classroom environment because we try to make it better being online, but um, no, no different than you know showing up at a class and having an instructor walk through stuff with you. And so as you're doing this, you realize, hey, we can get you know thousands to sign up for a free class, pay attention. Uh, we can convince some subset of them to pay us, you know, a, a real money. Um, and you leave and it's just you, you've got a co-founder, a team kind of, what was those early days? Yeah. It's just me and my co-founder. Um, he was basically teaching 9am to 9pm and I was basically trying to get butts in seats 9am to 9pm. Um, and as a part of that, we started emailing, you know, the thousands of people that have signed up for the free class, like, Hey, why don't, why don't you pay $10,000 to the school you've never heard of? (laughs) And like, join us. And every single time the response was, you know, a, I don't have the money. B, I can probably get the money, but that's just way too much risk. What if it doesn't work on the other side? I just blew ten grand, mm-hmm. and frankly, that's deserved in the code bootcamp space. There's a lot of bad product out there, a lot of really bad schools, frankly. Um, so I, you know, can't fault anybody for that. And so we we had like for our second cohort, we had one empty seat. Um, and we basically emailed everybody and said, Hey, we have, 
you know, one seat left. If you'll pay us a thousand dollars up front, then you can pay us the other, you know, we'll add on a finance charge. So pay us $10,000 after you get hired, um, same course. And we had like 200 applications come in and that's when we realized, okay, there, there is something to the idea of de-risking it for the student. And if we can do that, then we can, we can fix all this other stuff that we've wanted to do. Like we felt like three months wasn't really long enough to get you from where you needed to be or from where you are to where you need to be as a software engineer to get hired. Um, but if you don't, you know, if you're not charging $10,000 then you have to charge $20,000, how many people are going to charge you 20 if it's hard to get them to pay you 10? Um, so from that, we basically moved to a model where it was, Hey, you can either pay us $20,000 up front or you can just pay, you know, then we started delving into an income share agreement where you don't pay us anything until you get a job and then you'll, we'll do an income share for a couple of years if, and only if you get a job. Um, and we got a couple people to pay up front and that funded the rest of the class. And then we, when we announced that we had thousands of applications coming in on the, fr- on the free upfront with the income share on the back end. Yep. Got it. And so w- what is the model today? So the model today is, is basically that, um, it, it's completely free until you get a job that pays more than 50 K a year in the field that you study. Um, otherwise you never pay anything. Um, if you do get that job, we share, so you pay us 17% of your income for two years capped at a total possible of 30 K. So if your income is below 50 K, you pay zero. If it's above 90 K, you pay 30 K. If it's somewhere in between there, it's a percentage of income. You pay it off over two years and you're done. Got it. That, that, um, definitely de-risks for somebody who wants to learn and say, I'm going to bet on myself right mm-hmm. to some degree. Um, but either one doesn't have the money or two, you know, the, the, the price is the, the hurdle. What has been the success rate on the back end? Um, yes, yeah, so our first cohort, 83% of the students were hired and making more than 50 K. Wow. Um, it, it stayed right about that level. Um, it's, incredibly a big difficult number. to get to that, frankly. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's working. Mm-hmm. And, and so let's talk about the education kind of in the traditional world, right? Sure. So what's the issue there, right? Why, why is there so much demand for what you're doing? Um, there, there are a couple main factors that, I mean, so, so right now, if you are living in middle America and you want to change a career, Um, there are two huge problems. The first is that it will take you probably four years. You have to go get a university degree in two years is going to be studying Shakespeare and the liberal arts, which I have no problem with, but not an efficient way to switch careers. Mm -hmm. Um, and the second is that it's really freaking expensive. Um, it's gone up like 2000% in the last 10 years alone. Um, the average, you know, person that gets a degree, you're looking at 100, 150K in debt. Um, that's just too much to handle, right? That's, you know, I, I always think about it from a risk perspective. That is a whole lot of risk to take on hoping that this new career change pays off for you. Um, so, you know, the opportunity cost of your time and the cost costs of the tuition and living expenses for four years is just astronomical. Um, so, we basically, we, we de-risk the education by making it free up front. And then, um, yeah, we, the, the other aspect of that is a university isn't really built to get you a job. 
that's kind of a, they view that as a side effect of what they do, but they're not like gunning for that. For us, that's all we care about. And you, you don't come to us if you don't want a job, but you do come to us and we will do everything we possibly can to help you get a job or we don't get paid. And the incentives really, really matter. How do you uh, drive that high like success rate in getting the job? Um, yeah, I mean, the first thing is picking qualified students that show us that they're capable. Um, the second thing is picking a job market where there is high demand. And then the third is just we know that we have to make you the best engineer you possibly can be. And if you're a really solid software engineer and you're looking for a job, you will find one. It's, it's just a matter of do you have enough time and gumption to, to look, um, which is a, a problem we run into in some of the lower income backgrounds. They just don't have the day graduation hits. They're out of money. And that's a problem we, we have to deal with. Um, but, but generally speaking, it, it just works, right? The, the promise of, hey, you can learn this skill and people will pay you to perform that skill. It just, it works. It always has. Um, and you don't have to believe us because, you know, you, otherwise you won't pay us anything. Yep. That makes sense. What do you think about in the traditional uh, world? There's an argument that um, I recently, I think it was an op-ed that I read that said, you know, a place like Harvard, for example, has such a large endowment that they should lose their uh, their education status, their school status, because it's basically like a financial institution with uh-huh. just a school um, attached to it, right, for mm-hmm. some tax benefits. I, I don't even, you know, I have no opinion in terms of agree, disagree, but how does that type of endowment model and kind of the, the large financial um, focus for some of these institutions play into, you know, how much they charge, how the, the kind of the overall system works? Yeah, Harvard could... <coughs> Sorry, one sec. Harvard could make their tuition zero, and relative to the size of their endowment, it wouldn't move the needle that much, right? It just they may as well take 40k a semester from rich people because that's what a lot of their student body is anyway. Um, I I think the goal of Harvard and the goal of Lambda School are just very, very different. Um, I had a conversation recently with someone who did, who does the, the interviews for Harvard and in their handbook, they say, you know, Harvard, you know, we're trying to find the next Michelangelo. We're not trying to create the Medici's who are the people that funded Michelangelo. So there's kind of a, a social element there, um, or social class statement that, you know, we don't want to train the merchant money-making class. We want to train something higher, something more enlightened. Um, so, and that's just not our goal, right? Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll create as many Medici's as we possibly can. Yep. Um, and we want to take people that aren't Medici's and make them Medici's and then they can fund the Michelangelo's later. Um, so I think just fundamentally the, you know, our goal isn't necessarily to create you know, Nobel Prize winners, um, and we're not. You know, it, it's just a very, very different organizational structure and and goal. Absolutely. What is the like biggest problem as people go through the program that you see if somebody's not technical, becoming technical and gaining that skill set? Like, what are those challenges that you guys really work with people to kind of you know smooth over, over the transition? Yeah, I think the first and foremost, um, people, I don't know if they, 
have forgotten how to learn or if they've never learned how to learn. But so many people come into Lambda School and they're like, okay, you know, what, you know, what is required? What's going to be on the test? What do I have to do to check all the boxes so that I can signal to, to whomever that I know this stuff? Um, and that just doesn't, that fundamentally does not work in software engineering. In software engineering, you have to be able to approach something you've never seen before, understand how to decompose that, understand what works, what doesn't work, what will be optimal, what will be suboptimal, make trade-offs, um, and then solve the problem. And that is very, very different than the way the educational system has traditionally been run. Um, so we have to kind of beat that out of people. We have to beat out of them the idea that you, you show up, you check boxes, and you're done. Um, or you, you, know, you jump through various hoops, and that shows everybody that you can do all the stuff that you need to do. You just can't do that as a software engineer. Um, so we, we basically spend the first month trying to create a new system of incentives and motivation that are, you know, you, we need to, people to learn how to learn. Um, once that clicks for people and you can, it's almost visible, um, then, then they're set, then they're off to the races and they can do anything and everything. Um, we don't have to worry about them anymore. No, that's awesome. And, and do you find that once they get over that hump of, you know, here's how to learn again, um, the, uh, the information that they, um, acquire, like there's an acceleration. And oh, absolutely. And that even continues like post the program into their job. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the cool thing is at the end of Lambda school, not only can you do the stuff that we've taught you how to do, but when you see something that you've never approached before, yeah, a good student will say to themselves, Oh, I, I know how to learn that. I've never touched it before, but like, let, let's dive in. Let's look at the documentation. Let's figure it out. Um, I think that that's an acquired skill for most people, um, at least in the U S today. Um, just the, even the notion that you can see something that you know nothing about and you can figure it out is very foreign to most people. Most, you know, most people come to us because they don't understand that that's possible. Um, and we have to, to teach them to do that. Well, and, and not only is it how to do it, but it's the desire to right. want to learn something new, right? A lot of right. people see something that they don't understand and they just walk away. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the funny thing is I look back, you know, when I was younger and I, I see that in myself. Like there, there were so many times when I would see something and I'd be like, ah, I can't figure out how to do that because I'm not, I'm not a software engineer. I've never been trained to, to do that. Um, and it was once I really started to say, okay, you know what? I'm just going to do whatever I want and I'll, you know, figure it out as I go. Um, which by the way, that kind of clicked for me when I was living in Ukraine, learning to speak Russian and just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to speak Russian, but I'm going to try with this guy, you know? Um, and that, that really matters. So now it's, you know, I'm dealing a lot with, I mean, as a CEO of a rapidly growing company, everything that I'm dealing with, I've never touched before, never imagined before. But it's not that intimidating. It's just I know there's a learning curve. I know I have to pick stuff up as I go. Um, I'm not a finance guy, but had had to learn finance. More, of, you know, structuring all this stuff. Had to learn how to manage, how to organize a company, all, all that stuff. Um, but you can do it. And there, there are materials out there. There are resources. There are people, and you can just figure stuff out. Absolutely. How many people have gone through the program? Um, so we've had 150 graduates. Um, and then 700 are concurrently enrolled. Got it. 
what what are some of the things you've learned from you know because there's probably thousands of applications you've got hundreds now who have either gone through or going through what are the biggest things you've learned about people and and kind of going through this transition yeah i think the first is you assume that everybody has the same like requirements and needs that you do. You just figure that, oh, this is what I needed, so everybody else is the same way. Um, the, I mean, instructional design is not, I mean, a, there are a lot of code schools that are like, yeah, we don't need to worry about that stuff. It'll just, you know, we're engineers. We'll figure it out. We can teach. Um, but a good, really good instructional designer that's done that for 10, 15 years knows how to take all these different things into consideration when they're building a curriculum so that it works for people from all sorts of different backgrounds and stress levels and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, so we definitely underestimated the difficulty in creating a really good curriculum. Um, and then the other thing is just the, and this is constantly a learning battle um, because a lot of our students come from very low income backgrounds. They're very stressed financially from day one. Um, creating an environment where somebody that's already, that already has stress at level nine based on their normal life circumstances, getting them to learn something that's incredibly difficult is, is hard. Um, and we have to, to build in support for that kind of thing. Um, sometimes that's financial support. Um, we can only do that so much. A lot of the time it's just emotional support. It's just, you know, sometimes people just need somebody to talk to. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's, that's another thing we definitely underestimated. Got it. And then what, what are the challenges that you guys have gone through that you guys have already overcome? Right. So as you started building this, it sounds like there was, you know, people who came in, you had to learn a lot about who are these people, what are they kind of going through outside of the school? What are their goals? How do we actually get them into uh, jobs? And, you know, kind of just the, the nitty gritty blocking and tackling of building a company. But are there specific challenges that stick out to you in terms of, um, you know, they hit you really hard and and, uh, and, and forced you to, to kind of wake up and, and get through them? Yeah. So if you look at Lambda School as kind of a traditional, you know, what are all the risks that are involved in this startup? And let's start peeling them away. Um, it basically starts out with, can you get people who haven't paid anything up front to finish a six month program? So re really, fo <coughs> really focusing on uh, the persistence of, of somebody's desire to finish. Yeah. I mean, when we started, everyone was like, you guys are going to get killed because students have no skin in the game. Mm -hmm. You guys took on all the risk. What, you know, if they just shut a laptop and walk away, what happens? And they're right. Right. Like, we have to find people that are dedicated and motivated. And then the course has to be so good that there's never a point where they're just like, you know what, to hell with yep. this. How do you screen for the dedication and motivation? Um, so now we, you know, it, in the beginning we would try stuff like, Hey, let's try this logic challenge. And if you can figure, you know, if you can think analytically enough to get through this challenge, then we'll accept you. Now we actually require all of the students to go through a class before they start and we monitor people when they're in that class and see how well you do in that kind of trial environment. Um, so we call it tryouts. And we accept people based on how well they're able to be dedicated and, you know, finish stuff and, and all that. So, I so love you, that. you kind of put in sweat equity as opposed to 
a cash investment. That's the skin of the game. Is yeah. the, is the, you got to get through the tryout, and if you're good enough to get through the tryout, then you're welcome. If not, then see you later. Yep. Yeah, I that's, love that. That's exactly right. And you would be shocked at how many people who are incredibly talented just don't have they, they won't show up every day yep um and that's i can i can take somebody that will show up every day and work hard and i can teach them how to code if you're an already mediocre coder and you still won't show up every day i can't help you yep. um so that's yeah i think what we really learned was the the grit level of a student is the most important factor what um is it a th- an all day every day or is it a night class how, how do you offer students when you say show up every day right what, what is the ask of them on a daily basis yeah so it's it's for the full-time class it's 8 a.m to 5 p.m um your button seat so 8 a.m to 5 p.m pacific so you know different time zones are different um monday through friday for seven and a half months um wow. For the part-time class, it's 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific, um, which is you know 9 p.m. to midnight, um, Monday through Thursday, and then three hours on Saturday for a year. So basically, you can either say, I'm going full-time, and I'm not going to have a job for seven and a half months, or I'm going to keep my job, and I'm not going to have a life for a year. Um, and there, there's just there's simply no way around that, right? You have to be able to put in the hours, or there, there's nothing we can do to help you. Mm-hmm. What's the number one reason people quit? Is it just the rest of their life? Like everything yeah. else kind of just takes over? Yeah, by far. Um, you have a spouse supporting you, and then the spouse loses a job. You have a death in the family. Sometimes it's like we have a lot of students in the southeast, and when hurricanes hit, you know, it's just so frustrating. Um, so Shark attacks, <laughs> just all kinds of like stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, when, when you know we have 700 students enrolled right now, at that kind of scale like something crazy is going to happen to somebody it's just it's just going to happen um so there you know that just comes with the territory and we have to build it into our model and work with people we had a student that was in on vacation in costa rica i think um either costa rica or puerto rico one one of the two um got mugged got everything stolen like couldn't you know barely made his way home um, so, he, you know, we didn't know what happened to him. He just didn't log on. And then three weeks later, he shows up and says, hey, I got I got mugged and it took me three weeks to get back home. Wow. Um, and, you know, so we can we can accommodate stuff like that. Um, but stuff happens. Yeah. yeah. And uh, this is the classes are all in English. Uh, all in English. No other languages yet. No, nope, we not yet. Not yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, one day. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, what are you teaching? Right. So are you teaching one single language? Are you teaching multiple languages? And I, as a student could pick, walk me through kind of, this, you know, some of the content itself. Yeah. So, so we separate it into different tracks. Um, the, the full stack web development track, um, we'll teach JavaScript, which is, you know, react node. Um, we used to teach Mongo. We recently removed Mongo and replaced it with relational databases, SQL, Postgres, stuff like that. Um, that's kind of the first 15 weeks is full stack, traditional JavaScript stack web development. Um, then we have 10 weeks of computer science that is based in C and Python. Um, so Python and Django, just because we want you to have exposure to a new language, we'll do a lot of the data structures and algorithms training in Python. Um, first of all, because it's, a different language, but second of all, it's 
probably a better language than JavaScript. I, I should be careful saying that, but um, it doesn't have the same side effects that JavaScript has and is a little better to reason with when it comes to data structures and algorithms. And then C, because C doesn't let you abstract away all the hard stuff and you have to deal with the lower level. So when we're you know talking about systems and architecture and operating systems, we use C for that. Um, and then we have a five-week um, apprenticeship that we call Lambda Labs. It's kind of a simulated dev shop environment. Um, you can use new languages. So we have students build stuff in React Native um, or Ruby and Rails or whatever. Um, that, you know, you can kind of choose, choose your own path. Um, we, we also have a program that's a little bit different um, for the full stack web development called Lambda Custom. And that is when an employer comes to us and says, hey, I want to hire 10 Phoenix and Elixir engineers. We'll basically swap out the traditional curriculum for something that includes Phoenix and Elixir. Um, but they have to be willing to guarantee that they'll hire 10 students for it to be worth our time doing that. Got it. Um, then we have other tracks. We have iOS, we have Android, we have UX design, we have data science. And those you know, fall with similar pattern, but you would have to map what I just said on onto those different. That makes sense. Um, what about blockchain interests, right? So obviously most of the people listening are super interested in blockchain, crypto, et cetera. Are students aware of it? Are they interested in it? Are they looking for jobs in the industry? What, what have you seen so far? Yeah, um, a lot of students come in, Not, I don't know if I should say a lot, but there are definitely some students that come in interested in crypto and um, we have some some side stuff that we send them through so they actually understand the, the cryptography aspect of crypto, mm -hmm. not just here's how the blockchain works, but, you know, keys, all, all that stuff. Um, yeah, we, we have a few students that are hired as blockchain developers. Um, it's not a majority of the students, but those students are really well paid. Mm -hmm. um, there's a pretty big shortage of blockchain engineers. Mm -hmm. um, when you say pretty well paid, what do you think average... I shouldn't. Our, our average is ridiculous. Our average for blockchain-based engineer is like in the hundred ninety k range. Hundred ninety thousand. I mean, you know that like twenty blockchain engineers just went to their boss and said, "Hey, I need a raise." Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, again, I'm not saying that's average, but that that's what our average has been. Um, I I would imagine that it will net out to being. It's kind of software engineering salaries plus a 20%, you know, bonus for understanding how crypto works. Yep. And, and then um, do you see any difference between the people who come in that are interested in crypto versus not in, you know, going through the program uh, or, or um, kind of the, the skills that they're better at or worse at? Because um, it sounds like there's definitely on the back end, there's a difference in, in kind of maybe salary, but anything in, in the middle of the program? Um. I, I think it's just a different like focus area for them. Um, so there, there are a lot of people that are kind of, you know, hey, Bitcoin is cool and I have a Coinbase account. Um, and then once they learn to become a software engineer, then they, once they learn to learn, like we talked about, then they start to actually delve into how does a blockchain actually work? What is this? What is, what is a ledger? You know, how, mm -hmm. what, what are we actually talking about when we're talking about moving crypto from point A to point B, what, you know, um, so that, that's really cool to see that they, there's a certain point where it moves from, 
hey, crypto is this abstract thing and their you know, prices go up and down to let's understand the tech under the hood. Let's read what Satoshi wrote. Let's understand, you know, all that stuff. Um, and I think there are surprisingly few people in the crypto community that understand all of that fully. Um, there are a lot of people that are trusting other people when they say crypto is secure. Crypto is, you know, a private method of transaction. Crypto is, you know, you you could probably list off a bunch of different things yep. more, more than I could off the top of my head. Um, and people get that conceptually, but when you understand the tech, when you understand cryptography, when you understand how mining actually works instead of, hey, I just, I'm just going to buy a GPU rig and plug it into something. Um, it, it's pretty cool to see. Yeah, absolutely. What, um, what do you guys need the most help with? Right. So people who are listening, wh what can they do to, to make you guys more successful? Um, the first thing is stop lumping in Lambda school with other code boot camps that suck when you're hiring engineers. Um, that's, that's probably our biggest battle is people look at us and they say, Oh yeah, I've, I hired somebody from an eight week code boot camp once and they didn't perform very well. Like, of course they didn't. Yep. Um, how do you get over that right now? You right, just say, Hey, right that now was eight just, weeks and ours was seven and a half months. Uh, yeah. Right now it's just like, so we have a lot of companies that come to us or we, we come to them. We have a, a biz dev team that is constantly trying to create those relationships. And they're like, yeah, you know, we're looking for someone with a CS degree that writes Java. And we're always like, okay, just interview one. Um, just try it. And we've had multiple companies that, you know, first of all, they hire that person, they pay them 110K. And then they come back to us and we, we literally have companies coming to us now saying, can you send us 50 more? Can we, you know, what, wow. what can we do to, you know, we need to hire 200 engineers next year. We want to make 150 of them Lambda grads. Get me more of that. Um, so there's some some element of just, you know, they need to try and interview and hire the right person, and then, then they get it. Um, so we've had companies now that have hired seven or eight students, and we've, we've only had graduates for six months, right? Yep. Um, so that, that's really how we win in the long run, is just by better product. Yeah, well, so I definitely agree with that. What, what is your incentive, though? If I'm a student, um, and based on the way that I understand the, the pricing mechanism, right, basically, as soon as I get paid more than $90,000, you're kind of capped out, right? Uh -huh. And so what is the school's uh, incentive to help me go from 110 to 130 to 150, let's say, um, on that salary? Is it just the better that I leave with a great experience, great job, et cetera. I become an ambassador for Lambda or how do you think about that? Yeah. So, so we intentionally capped how much we take from an income share just because, I mean, if you're making 80 K and you pay us back, you know, 27 K, that's a pretty fair trade. If you start to make 150 K and all of a sudden you're paying us like 60 K, then that feels, I mean, obviously incentives are still aligned, but that, that starts to feel a little bit shady at that point. So we just put a hard cap on it. Um, that said, you know, we want you to be as successful as we possibly can be. We do report averages. We do report, you know, incomes. I love it when our students get hired for 110, even though that doesn't change our income level at all from when you're getting paid 90. Um, I mean, 
the truth is we do get it a little bit faster still because they'll, you know, they're still paying the 17% and they'll hit their cap earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a a small bonus, but I mean, really the, the long term in the long run, the way Lambda wins is if we have thousands of successful students out there, um, that employers trust, um, and, you know, later on in Lambda's life cycle, we'll start to have, you know, more products for, hey, you want to hire a software engineer that has two or three years of experience. Now we have thousands of software engineers with two or three years of experience that sell a relationship with us. Um, there, there are all sorts of, I mean, that our relationship with the student is usually really, really strong. They, mm-hmm. They're grateful. They are, they want to give back to the community in some way. Um, so we're just trying to foster that as much as we can. Absolutely. That makes sense. Um, all right. So I got two questions for you and then, uh, then we'll wrap it up. But, um, if you could change anything about the current education system, what would you change? I would, oh man, there are like 80 things. Um, the, the first is you have to realize the education system is 100% built around Title IV funding. Okay. Um, so, so Title IV funding is basically Pell Grants, federally subsidized student loans. Every university, every college is 100% built to pull money out from that pool or they're dead. Um, that is what education is built around entirely. Um, to be able to receive Title IV funding, you have to become accredited, which means you have to go through an accrediting body recognized by the you know, U.S. Department of Education. And there are a couple ways you can do that, but basically those are the people that are making the rules for the entire educational, you know, for all of higher ed across the U.S. because everyone is reliant on Title IV funding. Um, those rules are insane. Um, when we were, we were looking at it, um, you have to have, for, for most programs, you have to have two years of general studies, which may or may not make sense depending on what you're going into. You have to have your curriculum approved by certain people, which makes it really difficult to adapt and change curriculum, which in computer science world is just a recipe for disaster. Um, you have to have a librarian on staff full time. So even if you're in online school that doesn't actually have a librarian, you have to have somebody with a master's degree in librarian studies on your staff. Um, That's wild. So it's, it's just it's literally if you took 50 PhDs, sat them down in a, in a room and said, what do you think the requirement should be for education in the United States? That's literally what is happening. And they can write the rules for everybody. Um, and the only way you can break away from that is if you're not taking federal funding. And there's, there's a rule called the 90-10 rule, which is that if you're a for-profit college, you can only take 90% of your um, income or revenue from federal funds. And that's a huge problem is people are trying to stay below that 90%. So it, like that gives you a sense of how reliant everybody is on, on student loans, basically, or Pell Grants and, and whatever else. Um, if you made, if you said people can now bankrupt their way out of student loans, like you can't declare bankruptcy on student loans, they're there forever, that would rock the education system. If you said schools have to, you know, less than 50% of your students can default on their student loans, 
that would rock the education system, which is crazy. 50% is a huge, huge default rate, um, especially when you're talking about something that you can't bankrupt your way out of and is with you forever. Um, so I, I think the big problem is that there's just no, like the blind are leading the blind and there's nobody that can raise their hand and stop anything. So it's just this incestuous, you know, the, the PhDs write the rules for how accreditation is granted. As soon as accreditation is there, you have unlimited backing from Uncle Sam, so you can charge whatever you want. It all ends up on the student's back. The student ends up screwed, but you don't care because I got mine. Um, it's just a very, very broken system across the board. Absolutely, and, and uh, I think we're now starting to see the uh, the impact of uh, of the debt that we're putting on all of these uh, these students is pretty uh, pretty misunderstood. I think years ago, and now is uh, is quite sad, frankly. Yeah, I mean, when I went to college, um, you know, most of my high school buddies came from lower middle class environments, and nobody told us anything about student loans ever. Um, it was all just go to the best school you possibly can, study something you love, and if you get a degree, it'll all work out on the other side. And that's just fundamentally not true, especially in this day and age. Now, you know, a lot of people have degrees, and they're, I wish I could remember the, the number, but there's something like 5,000 people in the U.S. with PhDs that work as janitors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just... That's a ton. It's a whole lot. Um yeah, it's the expectations of the students and society are just completely misaligned with the expectations of the university and, frankly, the results. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, net net, you still make more money if you have a bachelor's degree than if you don't, because, of, of course, if you take all of the smart people in society and you have them get a bachelor's degree, by definition, they're going to, you know, it, it will bear out in the stats. Um, but we've translated that into everybody needs a bachelor's degree. And if you don't get one, you're screwed and pay whatever it takes, because that's the only way to make it. And that's you know, coupling that with and we'll give you unlimited money to do that because we think it's really important and we're not paying attention to what happens on the other side is just a recipe for disaster. And we're seeing that now. Absolutely. Um, all right. So ask one question, uh, to end it. And then I'll let you ask me one question, uh, before we're, we're over. Uh, all right. you got to admit that aliens exist somewhere in the solar system, galaxies, etc. Do we think that aliens have pets? Uh, yeah. So are there alien there's animals? A, there's a paradox. I'm trying to remember what it's called. Um, but and this is not what you ask necessarily, but aliens, so far as we know, have not made contact with us, right? So either they don't know we exist, they're not advanced enough to make contact with us, or they have conscientiously decided that it's just better off to let those humans do their own thing and, and leave them alone. Like we're like too stupid for them? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, I... Yeah, you could be like, yeah, let's just not disturb their natural environment. Let's let them burn it to the ground on their own. Well, because we always think about, like, we haven't found the aliens, right? But, like, what if they know that we exist and uh, and we don't know that they exist? Yeah, it's, I mean, it has to be one of those three things by definition, right? Either they don't exist or we're not, one or the other isn't advanced enough to make contact with the other. Um, or 
they're consciously deciding not to make contact with us, and they could. Um, I think the latter is pretty unlikely. Like, I think if they could make contact, you'd at least try to say, like, hey, what's up? Let's, you know, maybe there's some... Is it like a like a you up text at 2 a.m.? <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's some information sharing that could happen somewhere. I'm, I'm sure if you, you know, if you create one simulated environment and then another one, like, they'll both evolve in different ways and... I mean, you, you don't get you don't get a chance to say let's let's try all of humanity over again and see what happens this time. That'd be that'd be cool. Yep. Um, so, I'm gonna say that if there are aliens out there, they're not advanced enough to make contact with us. And if you look at let's see, so how long was it from the time that we domesticated animals until we were a spacefaring civilization? Maybe, well, it's less than a thousand years, right? Yeah, I believe so. So in the expanse of time and space, if we say, you know, the earth is hundreds of millions of years old, I'm going to say it's unlikely that they have reached the point of domesticating animals yet, because if they would have, then it's pretty likely that they would be progressing to the point where they could make contact with us. How's that for an answer? That's probably the most thoughtful answer that we've gotten. <laughs> Normally, people are just like, "We are, we are the pets. We are, we are the animals." But, but no, I think I think that's completely fair. Um, all right, what uh, what question you want to ask me? Um, let's ask you a hard one. <laughs> this always scares me so much when people are like, "Oh, let me ask you a question." Crypto transaction volume slowly going down. Why? Yeah, look, I am a believer that uh, it will continue to go down. So we're doing this in October of 2018, right? Um, mm -hmm. I think that uh, the beauty of a blockchain and crypto in general is security, right, and trust. And so, mm -hmm. like, I usually draw this spectrum for people. On the left side of the, uh, of the spectrum, you have security. On the right side, you have, like, um, you know, innovation and, like, all the shiny stuff. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin specifically is like as far left on that spectrum as you can get in terms of security is the number one thing, right? So really, really slow, you know, low transaction volumes because of the slowness. It just doesn't really work today as a medium of exchange for a whole host of reasons. Mm -hmm. What we've seen is a bunch of people try to push blockchain technology and crypto f to the right of that spectrum, right? So they start doing all sorts of things around uh, speeding up transactions. So the, know, on the left shiny. side of the spectrum, you have store of value. On the right side, you have means of exchange. Is that? Um, not necessarily, right? So I think that it, I think of it as... We'll, we'll call it replacing credit cards on the right side, maybe. So if for payments specifically, yes, sure. right? Um, I, I think that I just look at payment or non-payment blockchains and, and crypto you know, projects, companies, et cetera, all on this spectrum of like, are you optimizing for security or are you optimizing for, you know, speed, innovation and kind of all the shiny stuff? Sure. To me, we actually, because we're all like too smart for our own good, uh, meaning people in technology, like we keep pushing farther and farther to the right of that spectrum and we want all the innovation and the speed and all that stuff and, and we should do that right that, mm -hmm. that that is where like the r&d and the innovation etc is going to happen but i think that uh, i'm probably much more of a bitcoin maximalist than most in this idea of like the security and the trust of the chain and the technology is the core component sure and so while people are doing all that innovation and doing all this crazy stuff like people the bitcoin developers are just going to keep adding that to the bitcoin chain 
right? So sure. smart contracts and all this stuff. And so when we look at transaction volumes, for example, well, the most adopted chain, which is Bitcoin, and the most secure chain is also a slow chain because of the optimization for security. Right? Sure. So you can make the argument that if you're calling it a store of value, you don't look at like the transaction volume of gold to determine the value of gold, right? It's it's so that's definitely one. That's just the wrong measure. Is, yeah, so, is basically so, so the that's argument. one way to, to do it. I think that what becomes interesting, though, is is there a world where as we really solidify the security, the distributed nature of uh, of the technology, can we actually improve transaction volume, uh, the speeds and all this stuff? And so um, that's not going to happen in the first 10 years. Sure. Right. Like, so we're like, not at Bitcoin 0.1 yet. Don't try to do Bitcoin 2.0. Don't try to don't try to layer on speed and payments because we're still figuring out the very very fundamentals of yeah like like we're at like of the blockchain basically we're, we're, let's say we're at Bitcoin you know zero point five sure. right and people aren't even at two point people are like you know there's some people who have launched like four you know improved Bitcoins already like, sure. like how are you on number four already right we haven't figured out like the original Bitcoin and so I think that. Uh, the saying of like the people with the longest time horizons have an advantage here is definitely applicable. Um, And, you know, we're building a technology that if it can actually, um, you know, deliver on a third of the promise, right? So it doesn't even have to take over the money supply. It doesn't have to, you know, do all this stuff. If it just delivers on a third of what the promise is, it's probably one of the most important technologies of our lifetime, right? And so that should be, you so know, kind security, of proceed with care. Security is everything, basically. Well, so if there was a security issue on the Bitcoin blockchain, right, I would make the argument that Bitcoin would become unvaluable. Yeah. Right? So if there was a fraudulent transaction, if there was some sort of security breach in, in like a material way, what is the value of Bitcoin? I mean, zero, right? Yeah. So I think that, you know, when you look at, you know, what is the most important core uh, focus it is security. And so um, th- there's a saying in the military that uh, sm- uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, hmm. right? And so I think that that's kind of what we're seeing with Bitcoin of like, it goes slow, but it goes smoothly. And because it goes smoothly, we're actually making pretty fast progress, sure. right? Because at any point, if we try to speed up and there's an issue, you you lose all the momentum, right? And, and so I think we've seen that with some of the altcoins and, and so to answer your question, like I'm not worried about the transaction volumes because I don't think that's like the it's core not the right metric. Fo- yeah, I don't think it's the core thing to focus on. And uh, my hope, though, is that over time it will improve after we've figured out kind of that foundational security. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, fair. Awesome, man. I really appreciate you coming. I'm, I'm a huge fan of what you guys are doing. But how can people uh, find out more or apply to to, uh, to come to a class? Yeah, um, so we have free classes that start every month. Um, you can try it out. Absolutely no no cost. Uh, LambdaSchool.com, L-A-M-B-D-A School.com. Awesome. Well, uh, let's get some more people in there. We'll get some more blockchain developers. Awesome. Love it. <laughs> we, we need them. All right. Thanks so much, Austin. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.